0: Hello and welcome to the weekly market podcast from BNP Paribas Asset Management. I'm Daniel Morris, Chief Market Strategist, and I'm happy to be joined this week by Dominic DiAlto, CIO of Fixed Income. Welcome, Dominic. Uh, We're going to be talking about the implications of the U.S. elections for fixed income. Uh, But before we do that, we probably need to do a bit of a recap of the outcome of the U.S. election because, of course, it's not entirely determined yet. For what it's worth, uh, the odds on some of the betting websites uh, show a high likelihood that ultimately Joe Biden uh, is confirmed as president of the U.S. It seems that Republicans have retained control of the Senate, though there is the chance with runoffs in Georgia in January that could yet change. uh, And the Democrats still a majority in the House, but a slightly smaller one than they had before the election. What's been the market reaction so far to all of this? Well, primarily, you could call it a reversal of the blue wave trade. So we'd seen initially about a 20 basis point rally in 10-year Treasury yield, so that's partly reversed. Uh, Recently, also a decent rally, particularly in high-yield credit spreads, big rally in equities. And if we think about the motivation for all of this, uh, uh, several motivations, frankly. So one, in terms of reversing the blue wave, uh, part of that then was pricing out, taking out the anticipation of really, really large stimulus. If you had had democratic control of Congress as well as the presidency, so instead of trillions and trillions of dollars, of stimulus will likely have uh, rather less. Also, when we think about, in particular, the equity market reaction, Uh, Along with the stimulus that the Democrats had promised, there was also potentially tax increases that were going to come with that, uh, increased regulation and some relief perhaps for equity investors that that's much less likely now. We also saw among sectors uh, a reversal of the gains that initially had occurred following the first presidential debate when the odds of a blue wave seemed to be the highest. So big moves in renewable energy, health insurance, small caps, value, pharma, and tech, as the landscape looks quite different now than what people had anticipated uh, just a week ago. So what about the future then? Well, uh, in one sense, the outcome of a divided Congress with Joe Biden as president isn't necessarily radically different than what the outlook would have been if Trump uh, yet wins or, or had won if Congress is divided. Uh, Because with a divided Congress, essentially you have gridlock, It's what we've had over the last two years. uh, and a sense, that may be the situation that Joe Biden faces. Uh, He will need to work with the Republican Senate if he really does want to pass any legislation. Otherwise, he could be quite hamstrung over the next four years. Of course, all of this, depending on what happens uh, with the runoffs in Georgia, if that happens in January. The other thing then we need to think about is Uh, If it's going to be less initiatives coming out of Washington, uh, what are the underlying fundamental dynamics in the economy right now, uh, which frankly seem to still be reasonably good? Um, Recent non-farm payrolls data surprised positively. You had a pretty large drop in the US unemployment rate. Don't forget we did have those positive earnings surprises from the third quarter earnings season, good guidance. Uh, But at the same time, of course, we know, and this is going to be probably uh, the concern that the markets quickly turn their attention back to, uh, the pandemic outlook uh, doesn't look particularly encouraging, infections going up, uh, and the worry that what we see happening currently in Europe uh, may be what happens in the U.S. in the not-too-distant future. Uh, That said... Uh, U.S. hospitals in general are much better prepared now than they were earlier in the year. Uh, But of course, if infections rise uh, so high, that may not matter quite enough. With that then, now let's turn to our guest speaker. As I mentioned at the beginning, Dom, we still don't have a conclusion, definitive conclusion for the U.S. election. Uh, You're looking at this from the position of a portfolio manager. How do near-term events like the election affect how you position fixed income portfolios?
1: Well, thanks, Dan. Um, I I think it's probably helpful to take a step back and uh, briefly share a few of the ground rules that we tend to follow when we think about fixed income investing. Uh, My hope in doing that is I I think it might better contextualize how we approach events like this. Uh, Because fixed income assets have an income stream tied to them, our default objective, when all else is equal, is to try to out-yield our benchmarks. Uh, in short, it means that our resting state is typically to be overweight spread sectors and, and other higher yielding instruments versus uh, sort of risk-free rate instruments or, or government bonds in order to deliver the yield that our asset class promises. And you'll find us in that position the majority of the time unless there's some reason to be more guarded. So, what I want to do is talk a bit more about whether we think that's one. this is one of those times or not, uh, but, but maybe even go a little bit further more in terms of ground rules. Um, unlike equity managers, fixed income managers are not always trying to find securities that will deliver long-term growth or capital gains, but rather ones that will quite undramatically deliver their income without any capital loss. So it makes our mindset quite different. Than, uh, you know, than perhaps conversations that you would have uh, with, our, with our equity peers. Um, fixed income is also unique in that there are many sub-asset classes within it. And as you would imagine, there's some asset classes that generally correlate somewhat negatively to equity markets, such as treasuries and other government bonds. But there are also many others that actually perform in the same direction. Um, sectors that come to mind there would be corporate, corporate bonds, uh, some structured securities, things like that. So so back to your question, we approach events like this, this election uh, in the context of whether they validate or threaten our economic regime forecast. That's really what's most important. Um, and in short, right now, we have an expectation that um, further expansions in COVID-19 caseloads Uh, Despite the very favorable context that you put that in from the standpoint of hospital loads um, and reestablishment of of growth stifling lockdowns will put us in a fourth quarter regime that's commensurate with weaker growth and either flat inflation or possibly even decreasing inflation or disinflation. So um, that means that we're viewing the fourth quarter, even though we're already in it, we're viewing the rest of the fourth quarter from the lens of stagflation. And that means that we define the fourth quarter as a time to be guarded and a time to reduce our typical long risk position. Now, that has absolutely nothing to do with the election itself. And as I said, unless an event uh, jeopardizes that thesis in some way or challenges that thesis in one way, that's how we're going to continue to position uh, ourselves. So against, against this thesis, we've analyzed the different outcomes of the election. Uh, elections, I should say, and found that our regime forecasts are not likely to be breached in either direction. So, you know, to be sure, there'll be differing reaction function at the individual asset class and industry levels. But from the macro point of view, we've chosen to look through the elections and not make meaningful changes in positioning. Um, One thing that I would uh, say, you know, in terms of how, how our thesis sets up, if we were forced to assign a letter to the global recovery, it wouldn't be V-shaped, as I think a lot of people have uh, have posited. Uh, we would instead look at something that probably looks closer to a W, uh, and we think that we're only halfway through that W. So, you know, if you're looking at it visually, sort of the peak of the middle of that, uh, of that letter, which means that we think that we're likely due for a bit of a fall. Um, And then, you know, last thing I would say, again, just to kind of say that the election matters less, is that, you know, and I'll take some artistic license with a campaign strategy from the Clinton era, uh, which is to say, it's the virus, stupid. Uh, At that time, they said it was the economy, stupid. But in reality, our view is that COVID has been and will be the driving force behind any changes that we make going forward into 2021.
0: With that backdrop then, can you explain if the binary outcome scenario of the election changes your longer-term view?
1: Well, I mean, first, I'd, I, I, would, uh, I would say that the outcome isn't binary at all. I mean, obviously, uh, economic outcomes would be different if the choice of president was the only one in the ballot box. But the other key race, as I think you mentioned earlier, uh, is for control of the Senate. And, you know, the, the expectation of a blue wave, as you mentioned, didn't quite materialize as expected. Although I would caveat, we're still counting votes. Um, there, is, there is clearly a higher probability at this point that the Senate will hold its Republican majority. Um, what that means is that, you know, two, two things that I think offset each other, uh, on one hand, markets tend to abhor change, right? And, and, and they like when there's partisan gridlock because it means nothing really gets done. And that is typically good for markets. It sounds counterintuitive, but that is the case. Um, on the other side, uh, there is a higher uh, a heightened market fear that further stimulus is going to be mired by this bipartisan gridlock. Um, we tend to disagree with this fear, um, and uh, you know, at the macro level at least, uh, as I discussed earlier. Uh, but we do think there will obviously be meaningful impacts on individual parts of the economy, uh, which means different uh, sub-asset classes, as I mentioned, in the absence of a unified legislative and, and an executive body. But again, going back to the thesis, I, I don't want to lose, I don't want anyone to to sort of lose the context of the bigger picture. When we entered the year, um, our global economic growth forecast, or even if we look at the consensus, was about 2% year over year with a similar forecast for inflation. We happened to think that that growth would deteriorate as the year progressed. Now, the pandemic hit, and we didn't quite expect that it would happen so quickly. But that was basically how we were positioned. So let's call that the first leg of the W. Um, of course, in April, major central banks and governments around the world delivered emergency monetary and fiscal support policies uh, that created profound support, uh, a profound support structure for assets that had sold off. Central banks had basically declared themselves to be the buyers of last resort in a number of fixed income sub classes, and they remain that way. So as would be expected, we saw a record market rally that started in April, and you know, really all spreads tightened significantly. And I'm going to put that into context a little bit later. Um, and you know, I would just note what's, what's different this time is that what took months and months to do in 2008 actually was done in, in days. So let's call that the second leg of the W. Um, you know, Just uh, maybe because I'm a fixed income guy and, and we tend to look at the negative side of things, to put jobs, as you mentioned, in context, in the U.S. alone, we lost about 21 million jobs in March and April due to the shutdowns. And, you know, we, we've already talked that there were great programs created to support businesses and to retain retain staff, but all of that's already expired. And, you know, while we think that there will be stimulus that comes even in a bifurcated uh, legislature, it's not going to be anywhere near as uh, as meaningful as it would have been um so you know that means to me that we're set up for the third leg and that third leg is a down leg where we start to uh you know unfortunately start to see the 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 deficits that come uh from from prolonged uh shutting down of certain industry and certain economies uh we're also facing a reshutting so that's certainly not going to bode well so we would be really, really guarded at this point. And it's not again due to the outcome of the election necessarily, but we are fearing, like others, that you know, because of a bifurcation, uh, whatever policies have put in place, there's probably not going to be a whole lot more. Which gets me back to that, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's the, it's COVID stupid, that really it's gonna be the timing and and production of a vaccine that's gonna make all the difference.
0: Now, a gridlocked U.S. government could mean that large-scale fiscal stimulus is not forthcoming, as you mentioned, slowing the U.S. economy. At the same time, a second wave of COVID is leading to renewed lockdowns, as you mentioned, reimposition of restrictions, which could halt whatever recovery we've seen so far. Could these developments then lead to a substantial wave of corporate bankruptcies and defaults, and importantly, what's priced into investment grade and high yield corporate bond spreads. Yeah, I, I think that's the
1: right follow up question, right? Because what I said was that you know while we might not be too concerned so much about the elections, there there we are quite uh, concerned about uh, about the virus and uh, the reaction function of you know what we would call a more functioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, legislature versus one that's more mired. Uh, there is a lot to unpack in that question, so let me let me try and pull apart some of those uh, some of those uh, some of the parts of it. Um, I'll, I'll say again, it's too soon to guarantee that the Senate is lost as of as of right now, which is Friday afternoon. Uh, there are still five Senate seats that are too close to call, uh, despite having in some cases upwards of 95% of the vote counted um in at least two of those five seats we already know that there will be runoffs in january due to state laws that require greater than 50 percent tally so not all is concluded there either um that said let's presume for a second that the presumption of the question is uh is that it will be bifurcated um we articulated about a month ago that it was unlikely that a second stimulus program would be agreed on before the election um, now that the election is at least ever so closely moving behind us, we feel confident that some form of fiscal stimulus will be agreed to, despite the fact uh, that we have uh, a Republican Senate if we do. Um, one caveat I'd mention is that you know fiscal stimulus is a very strong motivator for a candidate during an election, but sadly less so after one. Uh, and so while we feel strongly that there'll be a deal, we don't think that that deal will be as significant as the first package, to be sure. Um, Additionally, let's not forget that there is, there is a monetary aspect to this. Uh, Chair Powell spoke yesterday, uh, talked about the impacts of further lockdowns and limited uh, fiscal stimulus, um, and you know he, he has made very clear that the Fed stands at the ready to support as needed by either reducing rates, if need be, or more importantly, to ramp up asset purchases. So in the end, we're pretty confident that, just as we saw in April, investment grade at least credit assets will ultimately revisit current levels even if they sell off on the way so as i said we think that there's going to be the third leg of the w which is a down but we see the opportunity there if it happens now specific to your default question i think it's helpful to highlight the volatility that we've seen particularly in high yield credit where the risk of default is more prominent U.S. high-yield spreads weakened to a high of about 1,100 basis points in March, only to tighten back to about 480 basis points today. That's a huge move uh, after these policy interventions and modest reopenings. In Europe, much the same, we went out to 866 and now traded 465. Now, to put these levels in perspective, the last time we saw spreads this tight was in February. Uh, when we projected economic growth, the prospects of earnings growth, and more importantly cash flows, were far more positive than they are today. So again, I'm trying to justify our thesis of the third leg of the W, which is for spreads to widen. Um, unfortunately, the, the consensus for global growth now is probably in the minus minus five percent or so year in year range. Yet current pricing in these credit uh, in credit default expectations. Uh, would suggest less than 2% default rate. Now, this is despite the big three rating agency consensus forecast of more than 5% over the next 18 months. So in short, we believe that in particular, high yield credit spreads are greatly at risk and uh, uh, expected default rates will likely be higher than they currently are. Um, so, So we're very, very concerned about high yield, but that said, while most of our concern uh, in that space is focused on high yield, uh, we do continue to believe that there's reasonable risk-reward characteristics uh, in the investment-grade side of the sector. So there, obviously, we don't normally see meaningful defaults. Every now and then there'll be a jump to default. but um, uh, And and further to that answer, I would say that there are, of course, some sectors that are at greater risk. Uh, Right now, I think we should be considering – the risks that are facing, you know, travel, lodging, entertainment, energy. Uh, But by the same token, uh, there are other areas like gold miners, healthcare, consumer staples that, uh, you know, that certainly, I think, uh, offer value at this point. And if spreads widen in, 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 writ large, they will present greater opportunities. I'd also point out that there are some companies that haven't levered up very much as as others have, and it's those areas that we continue to see modest value.
0: Okay, well, thank you very much, Dom, for sharing your perspective with us. If I can try to summarize what Dom has said, uh, primarily for the fixed income team, looking through the elections at this point and thinking about the longer term outlook for the economy, Uh, And if we have to pick a letter to describe what we're going through, it's uh, much more likely a W than a V. And at this point, looking at another leg down as opposed to a continuation of the up part. So with that perspective and looking particularly at uh, credit spreads, high yield spreads, uh, at this point appearing perhaps rather too low, default expectations too low, uh, and anticipating you may see a widening over the next several months, but at the same time, knowing, on the other hand, the Fed is ready to support the economy, to support the markets, uh, that that will likely turn out to be an opportunity. Timing always uncertain. What happens with a vaccine, certainly crucial. So at this point, rather more guarded uh, and waiting for those opportunities to present themselves. So with that then, that's all for today. If you have any further questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to your BNP Paribas asset management contact. My thanks again to Dominic for sharing his insights. I hope you will join us next week when I'll be speaking with Shikai Chen, head of our Asian equities and lead portfolio manager, to discuss the implications of the US election for Asian equities. With that, goodbye from us and take care. This
1: podcast presentation includes a discussion on current market events and is not intended as investment advice or an offer of products or services by BMP Paribas Asset Management. Please keep in mind that the information and analysis in this presentation is only current as of the publication date.